begin to worship, God begins to do something in our soul that we don't see. You know, David said something very interesting. David said, Lord, cleanse me of my secret faults. Think about that for a moment. David had the wherewithal to understand that there are some things so deeply embedded in his soul that he doesn't even know about. But David realizes that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the mystery of worship, through him humbling himself before God and relying on the power of God, that God um, does something, does something in his soul, does something to him that, that is completely revolutionary, that, that none of us can see. And that's why I love worship. That's why I'm, I, I enjoy coming every Sunday, even though I'm the pastor, I know I have to be here. But the reality is, even if I didn't have to be here, I would want to be with the people of God because my soul needs Sunday. It needs worship. And I hope the same is said of you as well, that you'd long to be with the people of God because you understand that something mysterious happens when we are with the people of God. And the word of God is open and proclaimed and we sing songs and we just fellowship together. Um, man, that's a sermon in and of itself. I, uh, you know, I prepared all of this and now I feel like you know, everything is going to be anticlimactic from here. But, um, but look, I love Esther chapter 5. And by the way, I love the book of Esther. I mean, the more I read it, the more I fall in love with God's word and the book itself and the power that the book has to transform our lives. And that's, that's what we're going to see a little bit today. So Esther chapter 5 is we're going to look at this matter of counterintuitive providence. We saw God works counterintuitively. And so today what I want to show us is how God works counterintuitively through you, through, through everything that we do within the context of the body, but also in the context of when we go outside these four walls. Um, so Esther chapter 5, let's read God's ho uh, holy word. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to her, to, to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the Lord has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the, in the king's gate, 
that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king to the feast um, she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high, by the way, this is 75 feet high, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he, si and he had the gallows made. And all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be proclaimed unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, you have brought us here to hear from you and you alone. Oh, Lord, this is your word and these are your people. I pray that you might take the word and implant it deep in their, deep in their hearts and begin the work of soul care in which their hearts are examined and changed, and healed. Father, thank you for the blessing of worship. It has the power to revive the soul in a way nothing else can. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And now, O oh Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. By the power of your blessed Holy Spirit and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. In the late uh, 4th century, the Visigoths um, began to destroy Rome. And as they began to destroy Rome, all of the wealthy and influential people in Rome beat it. They left. They were scared. And rightfully so, the Visigoths were violent and they took no prisoners. But in the midst of all of this chaos and carnage, St. Augustine sat down and wrote the city of God. And he wrote the city of God as a way to offer hope and comfort and encouragement to those who were distraught by what was happening. What was remarkable about what he did isn't just that he did it. But it took him 10 years to write the city of God, which means that as Rome is being sacked and all of the areas surrounding Rome is being sacked, here he is patiently writing out the city of God in order to encourage the people of God amidst this suffering. This is what we call counterintuitive. When everybody else's instinct was to run, Augustine stayed. When everybody's instinct was to panic, Augustine stayed calm. 
When everybody's instinct was to cast blame, Augustine took the time to encourage. Now, I want to be very clear here. The reason why Augustine was able to do this wasn't because Augustine was some great Christian. It was because the Spirit of God was working in and through Augustine to do this. And it was remarkable. For those of you that know this, we still read the City of God today. And it's still a powerful work within Christianity. But this is what it looks like to live counterintuitively in a world that's completely against Christian beliefs and Christian mores. I want you to think about that today. What if, for the sake of argument, Walker County was being overrun by the Visigoths? How many of us would put out, pull out our laptops and began to write a great work for, Christ, for Christianity to encourage the people around us? Now, I know some of you might have an instinct to do that, but that's very hard to do. And it's very hard to do on your own without the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I mention all of this because when you read Esther chapter 5, that's exactly what we see happening here. We see Esther acting in a way that's counterintuitive to all that's going on around her. Now, there are many examples of that, but I'm just going to give you four quick examples to show you today. And here are the four examples. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. If not, it doesn't matter. First of all, we see faith amidst despair, humility in the midst of pride, wisdom in the midst of folly, and righteousness in the midst of unrighteousness. First of all, faith in the midst of despair. Faith in the midst of despair. Uh, Richard Baucom, who is a New Testament scholar, wrote in his book, The Bible and Politics, that during the Holocaust, the Nazis refused to let the Jews in the death camps read the book of Esther. Now, now think about that for a moment. Think about that for just a moment. They could read the Exodus. They can read Joshua. They could have read any part of the Pentateuch. They could have read the prophets. They could have read it all. But the one book that they said they couldn't read was the book of Esther. Why is that? Because Esther is the perfect example of what it means to exercise faith in the midst of despair. I'll show you. Turn to Esther chapter 3. First of all, you see in verse number 13, the letters that were sent out to all the couriers. It said, letters were sent out by um, the couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children in one day. And so here you have automatically the entire uh, nation of, of Persia was, was thrown in disarray because now all the Jews were about to be killed. Despair. And then notice in chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai, when he learned of what happened, threw on all sackcloth and ashes and all of, uh, all of the people in the city with him. Despair. And then Mordecai comes to Esther in Esther 4 and verse number 4 on down where he pleads with Esther to deliver uh, the people. And then if you go down to verse number 11, Esther 4, verse 11, it, Esther tells him, uh, at least tells her uh, Hatak, who was her um, eunuch, to go and tell Mordecai, I can't do this. Why? Because the king hasn't called for me in 30, in 30 days. Uh, verse number 11. 
And by the way, the, the 30 days represented there is the number of death, which means this. She's saying that I am dead to the king because he hasn't called for me in 30 days. This entire narrative is set up to talk about despair. Even if you drop down in chapter number 5, verse 1 through 8, you can look and count the amount of times it mentions king, kingdom, palace. It's almost like the entire narrative was constructed to let us know that Esther was going into the very power and might of the Persian government. And she is sure to die as she comes before the presence of the king. Absolute despair. And yet, what do we see? We see that Esther says, prepare a fast and ask everyone to fast. And if I perish, I perish. In other words, showing remarkable faith in the midst of despair. That's why the Nazis didn't want the Jews to read it. Because more than anything, they understood that that there was something more powerful than the bombs of the Allied forces, more powerful than the armies of the Allied forces. What was more powerful than all of that was the fate of the people. The fate of the people. If the people believed in God, that's the one thing they couldn't fight against. I heard a pastor recently preaching a sermon on why uh, the Israelites released Barnabas instead of Jesus. Or sorry, Barabbas instead of Jesus. And here's what he said. And I found this to be so profound. It's amazing when you listen to God's word, how all the things that you hear. But here's what he said. He said they weren't worried about, they weren't worried about the insurrectionist Barnabas. You know why? Because insurrectionists come a dime a dozen. They had the power to put down Barabbas. That's why they weren't worried about him. So they released him. Yes, he'll go and get a number of people to come and fight for him. Yes, he'll rise up somewhere else. But they weren't worried about Barabbas. What they were worried about, worried about was Jesus. Because Jesus had the power to produce faith. And that faith is something that no army can fight against. Praise God. No army can fight against it. When the people of God believe the word of God and the message of the gospel, we're absolutely unstoppable. Now, there's some of you inside here today, you're new to Christianity, so you probably might be asking yourself the question, well, Pastor Dennis, what is this faith you speak of? Well, the clearest explanation of faith in God's word is found in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Faith is the settled confidence that God will do what he has promised, even though you and I cannot see it happening. That's the very definition of what Esther did. Esther said, hey, if I perish, I perish. In fact, she's saying, I know I'm going to perish, but I'm going to pray because I believe and trust in the holy, mighty God. That's what we're called to do, beloved. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor, uh, an English pastor, he's actually from Wales, but he pastored in English. He said something in England, he said something uh, profound in one of his books, he said that the trouble with Christians is that they believe in Jesus Christ, but they don't believe Jesus Christ. 
Notice the distinction. You see, what Lloyd-Jones is saying, and this is very powerful, is that for most of us inside here today, we believe in Jesus. We believe that there's such a person by the name of Jesus Christ. We believe that he walked the earth. We believe that he died on the cross for our sins. We believe that we should follow him. That's why you're in here today, to hear about Jesus, not about me. Right? That's why you're here. But he said the problem isn't that we believe in Jesus. The problem is, do we believe Jesus? Meaning, do we believe him enough to exercise the faith to do what he has called us to do? See, that's a different kind of belief. James says it a little bit different. James says that, that you believe in God, you do well. The devil also believes and trembles. If you simply believe in Jesus Christ, that's great. The devils also believe. But, but, but true faith comes when we believe enough to do what God has asked us to do. Now, this is tremendously practical. I'm going to give you three examples of how practical this is. The first one is this. Do, do we believe the gospel enough to share it to others? Uh, I remember when we were in seminary, we lived on the side of a, a young lady, and she sold uh, a product. I can't even remember what the product is. My wife probably remembers it. But, but I remember uh, we would get out of our cars and we would duck behind the buildings because, because I tell you, if, if she caught you, you'd buy half of her product line. She believed in the product. And so every time she saw us, she wanted us to sell it. She wanted the people on the road to sell it. Why? Because she believed in it. And she believed that it worked. And so when the gospel tells us, when the Bible tells us we ought to be sharing our faith, that's not an optional reality. The Bible says that if you truly believe God and you believe the gospel has, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, you would, you would proclaim Christ. Not in an obnoxious way. Not in a way that puts people off. But it comes out naturally. Because you don't just believe in Jesus Christ. You actually believe Jesus and what he says. And so you want to proclaim that to someone else. Here's the second example uh, that I'd give you. You know, we live in a world today where inflation is high. And my wife came home the other day, and she told me what the bill was. I had to go sit down. <laughs> right? Can't afford to live anymore. Right? And all of us is feeling the pinch of that. Inflation. The, the, you know, we see our money just dwindling because we have to live, and everything's more expensive. Now, now, here's how we live by faith. We, we still have to tithe. We still give to the food network. We still have to care for the poor. You think God didn't know that there was going to be an inflation? Do, do you think that caught him off guard? No. But see, that's what I mean by it takes faith. Because in the midst of inflation, with everything getting high and our budgets tightening more and more, do we have enough faith that God will continue to provide as we continue to give? Do we believe that we cannot outgive God? That's what it means practically to live by faith. I'll give you a, a very last example. You know, there's all sorts of things competing for the time of our families. There's all sorts of things. You know, there's music lessons and 
and, you know, uh, soccer, and, and you could go down the line. There's all sorts of things competing for, for the attention of our family. But, but do we believe that the most important thing that should catch the attention of our family is their spiritual needs? And so we prioritize family worship, and we prioritize going before the throne of God. You see, it's one thing to believe in Jesus Christ. It's another thing to believe him to the point where you actually act upon what he has called you to do. And, and that's what Esther did. Imagine if Esther said, proclaim a fast, and if I perish, I perish, and then she never went before the king. Did Esther exercise faith? No. No. And also, by the way, what if Esther just said, you know what, I'm going to show that king, I'm going to go before the king, and she never proclaimed a fast. Would she be exercising faith? No, she'd be exercising works. She's going, she's going to work. And so the power of what we see here is that when, when, as James says, when faith is married with works, we accomplish great things for the Lord. We accomplish great things for the Lord. That's the first thing I wanted to show you. The second thing I want to show you is this. Notice humility amidst pride. Now, if you read all the commentaries on Esther, one of the things that points, uh, that the commentators always point out, they're very hard on Esther. doesn't matter who it is. All of them are very, very hard on Esther. They said Esther is a compromiser, and, and even in this passage, she's, she's weak, and she's passive, and she's cowardice. But I think they miss the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative is to contrast the humility of Esther with the pride of Haman and King Ahasuerus. In fact, king, the king and Haman are the poster children for pride. Notice with me for a moment. Go back to Esther chapter 3 and verse 8 and 9. Haman comes to the king and here's what king, uh, he says to the king. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the province of the kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And here is it. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be declared that they be destroyed. And I will, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. What is he doing in this passage? He's playing on the pride of the king. He said, king, these people, they don't follow your laws. They're not interested in what you're interested in. I will give you money. It's like what the comedian Brian Regan say. He's the me monster. Me, me, me. Feed me. Give me what I want. That's the definition of pride. It's the definition of pride. It's all about me and what I want and my interests. Haman is the worst. Look at um, Esther chapter 5. Drop down to verse number 9. As Haman uh, comes and he's glad this wonderful thing has happened to him, he's filled with anger over Mordecai. He begins to talk about all the splendor of his kingdom and how all God has done with him. Then look at verse number 13. He says, after all of this, yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. How prideful do you need to be that despite all the things you have, you're worried about one person not showing you the kind of love that you feel you deserve? Hey, can, I, can I pause here and say something? And please, don't forget this. The one thing 
that will destroy each and every one of us every time is our pride. The Bible lays down a principle about pride that, man, we should read it every single day. The Bible says God resisted the proud. Resisted the proud. That means this. Every time you and I are prideful, when we think about ourselves instead of others, every time we go down that road of, of, of just exalting ourselves above everything else, the Bible says God is actively resisting everything that you and I are doing. And that's what we see happening in this passage. God resisted the king, and he resisted Haman. But notice, by contrast, the humility of Esther. Verse number 14. As Esther comes and uh, as Mordecai is talking to her down at, uh, sorry, verse number 15, she replies to, to Mordecai. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink or, uh, or three days. Me and my uh, young women will do the same thing. And if I perish, I perish. Notice two things about the humility of Esther. Number one, Esther knew that she couldn't do this alone. Couldn't do this alone. You know, one of the signs of a humble heart is you realize how much you need other people. Young people, listen to me for a moment. That's why you need a mentor, and that's why you need someone to siphon in your life. You can't live life on your own. You're not supposed to. You weren't designed to. You need people speaking into your life. You need people loving you. You need people pointing you to Christ. In fact, none of us should live life on our own. That's why we need the body. But the second thing is, Esther wasn't going before the king for herself. She was doing it for everyone else. You know, that's so powerful when we live life not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. I remember um, one year I was in school in Pensacola, and I was heading back to the Bahamas, and I arrived to the airport, and wouldn't you know, they overbooked my flight. Has that ever happened to anybody? It seems like it happens to me a lot. But at any rate, um, I, of course, was disappointed uh, because they told me that I couldn't get on a flight for another two days. I mean, they were badly overbooked. And I remember sitting down there kind of sulking a little bit, sorry for myself, praying imprecatory prayers against the airport and all their staff. And I remember a young lady walked from behind the counter. And she, she made a beeline for me. And she said, look, um, I know you really want to go home and see your family. So what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm supposed to go home uh, uh, on the same flight, but instead um, I'm going to let you go on a flight, and I'll just make the next flight. And, and I couldn't believe it. Now, that's, that's just a simple story of how someone wasn't thinking about themselves but thought about someone else and was able to be a blessing to somebody else. But let me tell you, every time those little stories happen, they remind us of a greater story of where someone laid down their life for us. Listen to what the scriptures have to say in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he 
humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Do you see how every act of humility and selflessness that you and I do is a part of the grander story of what Christ did for us? It constantly points us back to that. As I sit down and reflect on my own life and how so often people were selfless towards me, it always points me back to the greater story of how Christ exercised selflessness toward us. In fact, that's the gospel. When we go out in the world and we're humble and we commit acts of humility and we, we think less of ourselves and think more of others, by the power of God's spirit, God does something in our own heart. It's like a, a Holy Spirit, blessed, um, what do they call it, feedback loop. That's what it is. It does something to our heart. And by the way, when others see it, it does something to other people as well. Humility, giving up ourselves. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of what happens when you and I are humble in a world where pride reigns. Everyone is all about themselves and their own interests. But the people of God stand out when in humility, by the power of God's spirit, we're blessing others. Notice with me, wisdom amidst folly. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because if you've been with us and, and, and you know the book of Esther, one of the things that comes out over and over again is how foolish the people in Esther really is. Complete folly. I mean, first of all, the king uh, dismisses and banishes uh, Vashti foolishly. Haman gets angry at Mordecai and wants him killed. And then all of a sudden, there's this, there's this shocking display of them sitting down and, and, and drinking as the edict goes out. Complete folly. But in the midst of that, what do we see? Notice we see Esther having wisdom. In chapter 5 and verse number 5, as they are drinking, and the king says, Esther, what do you wish? Notice, first of all, she comes to the king and says, King, I want to throw you a party. Do you think this king loves parties? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And the only thing the king loves more than one party is two parties. But yet, yet, don't miss this in the narrative. Esther is using wisdom. You see, one of the things that characterizes foolish behavior is rash behavior. Rash behavior. And you would expect Esther, when she comes into the presence of the king and he doesn't kill her, you would expect her immediately to say, king, here's what I want. But she doesn't do that. She takes her time. Because the one thing you need to understand about wisdom is that it thinks through what it's going to do. It doesn't just rush into things. Only fools rush in. Right? Only fools rush in. Which reminds me, I remember one time we first went to a Chinese restaurant. My brother took me to a pretty fancy uh, Chinese restaurant, and I sat down. They brought out all the condiments. They gave us um, those egg rolls, and I saw this green stuff, and I said, ooh, pistachio taste. And so I like, uh, got a big dollop and put it in my mouth, and oh, my goodness, it was not pistachio taste. It was wasabi. My Lord. Needless to say, needless to say, for the next 10 to 15 minutes, I coughed, sneezed, and my eyes watered, right? Now, again, that's just a simple example of how we shouldn't rush in. 
But rushing in and being foolish has greater consequences. Is it not the case? How many times have you and I passed judgment without knowing all the facts? How many times have you and I said something without thinking through what we said? How many times have you and I acted out when it would have taken just a few moments for us to take a good look at the situation? You know, one of the things that characterizes foolishness is acting rashly instead of taking our time and properly understanding what's going on around us. And that's what Esther is doing here. Esther knows that if she just rushed in and asked the favor of the king, that she probably wouldn't have gotten her request answered, but she knew that if she took her time and asked one small favor after one small favor, eventually the king would give her her request. Do you practice wisdom? Or do you rush in? Do you take time to sit down and contemplate? You know, Jesus said, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? You know what's something about this world that I see a lot is people just rush to conclusions, rush to judgment. One of the most counterintuitive things that Christians can do is to pray and to act in wisdom. The final thing I want to show you today is righteousness amidst unrighteousness. Notice Esther chapter 5 verse 1. And I, and I have to admit, it's easy to miss this, but... But once you, once you see it, it's so powerful. Notice it said, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. Notice that phrase that Esther put on her royal robes. You know, in Hebrew, it actually doesn't say royal robes. It said that Esther put on royalty. And here's what I know about Hebrew narrative. And, th and this is awesome. This is why I love grammar. Uh, I wish my um, grammar teacher in elementary school could see me now, you know, championing grammar. Now, back then, I was, uh, I, you know, it was, I had to keep my head above water. I was a C student. You'll get that at another time. But, but the point that I want to make is this, that she put on royalty. Why is that significant? Because every time in the Bible when somebody puts on something and there's no reference of actual robes being used, it means that the Holy Spirit is at work. That what Esther put on wasn't the garment of, of royalty to impress the king. What she put on was the Holy Spirit. Karen Jobes, who um, is a scholar and, and she, she's a New Testament scholar, but early on, she wrote a commentary in the book of Esther. And by the way, if you want to study the book of Esther, which I recommend for all of you, pick up uh, her book. It's amazing. But she said this. She said that after Esther says, I, if I perish, I perish, um, the narrative switches where she's called Queen Esther more times than she, was, she did before. In other words, there are 14 times in the book of uh, Esther she's called Queen Esther. The only time before chapter 4, verse, what is it, 16, was chapter 2 and verse 22. That means that after she committed her heart and mind to the Lord, 
the Holy Spirit was put on Esther and Esther finally assumed the role that God has for her as queen of Persia. And let me say this, brothers and sisters, you and I as Christians, we need to have the power of the Holy Spirit operational in our lives at all times. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I love what Tim Keller says here. He says, notice that it says walk in the spirit and not somersault in the spirit. And that's an important distinction. Because somersaulting in the spirit means work. And walking in the spirit doesn't entail work. It entails you understanding that without the Holy Spirit energizing your life, you cannot do the things that God has called you to do. You simply cannot in your own flesh. You cannot. And Esther, after she dons the Holy Spirit, begins to do the work that God has set her out to do. Let me ask you a question. Whose power are you relying on today? Whose power are you relying on today? I was talking to our leadership team yesterday, and we we started talking about the Holy Spirit, and afterwards it dawned on me. You know, as a pastor, um, it's easy to get up here every Sunday and preach without the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I've been to seminary. I know how to exegete a passage. I know how to put together a sermon. I can come up here and just preach, and you'd never know whether the Holy Spirit is on me or not. Same thing is true of my marriage. I've been married long enough, praise God, 14 years. Yay. Yeah, yeah, somebody, give me some props. I mean, that's, yeah. It's all my wife. You know, she, she's drug us through this whole 14 years. Um, but it's easy to be married and not ask the power of the Holy Spirit to, to help me to love my wife. You know, when you've been married a little bit, you know what, what pleases your spouse, and so you do that. You know what doesn't make them angry, so you do that. But never once do you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to be a godly husband. Same thing is true when you're raising children. You know, you raise children long enough, you don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to raise your children. You know what to say. You've read the books. You've listened to the stuff online. But here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that if we are not operating under the power of the Holy Spirit, everything we do ends up being worldly and foolish. That if we play instruments, that if we do Bible studies, that if we sing and interact with one another without being concerned of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we're doing it under our own strength, not the strength of the Holy Spirit. You know that when you were saved, the word of God says, God placed in you the Holy Spirit. What for? If you could do it on your own, why did he give you the Spirit? He gave you the Spirit so you can rely on it to accomplish the work that he's given you. So I'll ask the question again. Whose power are you relying on? Let me make one more observation here, and I'll close with this. You know, the book of Esther, interestingly enough, never condemns Esther or Mordecai for all of their apparent violations of the Torah. Did you realize that? Never once did it say condemn Esther and Mordecai 
for, for all the things that they did. You know, Esther married a pagan. Wasn't supposed to do that. She ate all the food of Persia. She wasn't supposed to do that. I mean, no mention of her keeping the Sabbath. No mentioning of her um, refusing this process that she was a part of. Over and over again, Esther seemed to be complicit in everything that was going on, and yet she was never condemned. And this is why the book of Esther is so important. The book of Esther doesn't set up Esther as being a moral example for us. That's the exact opposite. What the book of Esther does is remind us that in God's providence, he works through sinners like you and I who accomplish his will despite or in spite of our sinfulness. <laughs> Man. That his righteousness powers each and every one of us. And if we but wake up every day and rely on the power of the blessed Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that he has set before us, then perhaps we'll be less irritable. Perhaps we'll be less depressed. depressed the, you know, perhaps we'll be less frustrated by life. If we but rely on his power and not our own. Father, we thank you that the work that you've left for us is a work that you enable us to do by the power of your spirit. Lord, as we read in the book of Esther so powerfully, um, everything that Esther did was counterintuitive. Exercising faith in the midst of despair, humility, and a culture of pride. Wisdom in a culture of folly. And righteousness in a culture of unrighteousness. And yet Esther didn't do it by herself. She did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, please come. Empower your people. Help us to realize our deep abiding need for you. And help us not to walk in our own strength. In Jesus' name, amen.